Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline. And Caroline, since we're talking about fake orgasms today, I just want to go ahead and get the When Harry Met Sally reference out of the way. <laughs> In almost every article that we read, Nora Ephron's hit about uh, friends who can't possibly not be lovers came up because there's that famous scene with Meg Ryan faking an orgasm to Billy Crystal in Katz's Deli in <laughs> New York City, and it's hilarious. And no, I'm not going to reenact it because that would be very inappropriate, but there it is. And their conversation in the movie during that scene pretty much sums up everything that we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. and which is basically like, Meg Ryan saying, oh, well, everybody, every woman's faked it at one point or another. And Billy Crystal's like, oh, but not with me. And she goes, well, you do the math. Every woman's faked it and every man thinks that they haven't. So, but not, it's not the entire conversation that yeah, Caroline, not, it's not that cut and dry. Yeah. Um, so before we get into statistics, cause we got a lot of statistics to go over mm-hmm. with fake orgasms, because I'm sure everybody's wanting to know what percentage of women have done it. Have men done it too? Um, but the whole female faking thing has a lot of cultural baggage with it as well that goes way back beyond when Harry met Sally. Yeah, goes back to the Victorians. Those darn Victorians! They always come up. God, why, do they ruin, why, why are we still suffering under Victorian things, at social least, stuff? At least we got graham crackers and cornflakes out of it. I guess. And Downton Abbey. And Downton Although it's more of an Edwardian. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, yes. Well, during the Victorian era, uh, the woman's orgasm came to be seen as sort of an unnecessary part of sexual intercourse. It really was sort of viewed as a man's thing to really enjoy sex and, and have an orgasm, whereas women were supposed to lie back and think of England. And if they didn't orgasm, who cares? Right. Well, there was uh, the point made by Brianne Foz in performing sex, the making and unmaking of women's erotic lives, that the sort of uh, self-imposed sexual repression became linked during that era to higher class for women. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not only higher class, but it's it's funny to talk about uh, sex and uh, gender and all this stuff in the Victorian area era, excuse me, because um, tied in with all this is hysteria, mm-hmm. the female disease, which was caused in their minds by a wandering womb, which goes back to Hippocrates. Hippocrates, uh-huh. um, who who said that the you know women might go crazy because their their uteruses are are wandering around, <laughs> just wandering, <laughs> wandering the womb. But if you fast forward to the 1880s, when the first vibrators were invented, um, they realized that they could cure hysteria, all of this anxiety and sleeplessness and excessive sexual fantasy that these women were experiencing by bringing women to orgasm. Right. And this was something done in doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. Like medical professionals were leading women to orgasm as a way to be like, hey, just calm down. Yeah. Don't don't have so much anxiety in your life, lady. And I, I can't believe that an orgasm went from being a normal thing that men and women experience 
to something that women shouldn't experience because they're too classy for that, to being something that happens in doctor's offices. But then after that, though, I mean, like if we're talking about uh, orgasm today, not only is it considered this normalized part or expected part of the sexual experience, but that is we conflate sex with orgasm. Yeah, good sex equals Having an orgasm. Mm-hmm. It's an expectation. It's also, um, I think Brianne Foz also uh, frames it as a type of gift that women give. And we're talking, too, at this point about heterosexual women, a gift that they give to their male partner. Yeah, and as as far as, as more of the history goes of, of sexual intercourse and orgasms and how they relate, um, the psychoanalysts... Freud got in on the discussion and it became okay suddenly for women to have orgasms expected for that to happen. But you're a weirdo if you can't have an orgasm through vaginal intercourse alone. Right. Freud Freud was very dismissive of clitoral stimulation. Mm -hmm. He said that was basically for girls. And if you cannot figure out how to have an orgasm through penile vaginal intercourse, you really weren't a woman. Yeah, not a real woman. No. And then, so fast forward, way forward into the, uh, the dawn of the feminist movement, feminist activism, and the female orgasm, according to Jane Gerhardt, came to signify the political power of women's sexual self-determination. So suddenly the discourse was more about we can have an orgasm any way we want and we deserve to have an orgasm any right. way we want. Right. And it shouldn't just be some kind of gift or performance unless it is a gift or performance, you know, for ourselves, maybe. Yeah. That just sounds like masturbation, though, which was another two-part podcast. <laughs> yeah, we've already covered that. Um, yeah, the author of that Making and Unmaking of Women's Erotic Lives book cites research that shows that some women tend to downplay the significance of orgasm, while other women rate it as the most important feature of sexual satisfaction. And so now we're getting into more of the, oh, well, it's okay, you just go ahead kind of mentality that some women have about sex. Right, and a lot of uh, surveys from the Kinsey Institute have found that if you ask men and women whether or not sex can be satisfying uh, without an orgasm, way more women will say, yeah, that's okay, uh, compared to men who are like, oh, I kind of, no, I mean, I sort of, that's what I, that's my end goal. <laughs> right. And uh, Foz says that by downplaying the importance of orgasms, women may be indicating that they don't value their orgasmic pleasure, or like you were saying, it could be that they uh, ha- place a greater importance on other aspects of relationships. So maybe just emotional connectedness, that uh having the connectedness of sex is more important than actually achieving orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- by that, by extension of that logic, you would think that if we are faking orgasm, it would be to foster emotional intimacy? Or to trap a man. Dep- <laughs> depending on what you're reading. Depending on what you're reading. Because there's also the notion that, uh, you know, completely opposite to that, that faking an orgasm is a way for us to distance ourselves from male sexual partners. By ourselves, I'm still talking again about heterosexual women. We'll talk about same-sex relationships a little bit later on. Um, do you want to get into some statistics? Let's do it. Okay. Let's hit the stats. Let's hit the stats. There have been a number of studies and surveys on women faking it. Women specifically 
faking it. Uh, from 1973 to the present day, a series of studies have found that anywhere from 53 to 65% of both married and unmarried women have pretended to climax at some point. Um, there was a study, I believe it came out in 2010, from Erin Cooper, who was a psychologist at Temple University. And she talked to 366 women, ages 18 to 32, and found that about 60% of these women faked it. And I thought that this study was kind of compelling because... The number one reason that she found for these mostly college females faking it was creating distance. And then she also found for a small subset said that it actually enhanced their own sexual experience. was kind of a fake it till you make it sort of thing. Yeah, maybe the faking it just turn them on more and maybe they could actually achieve a real orgasm then? Well, yeah, by maybe by uh, by faking excitement that could turn the other person on more as well and then it sort of snowballs perhaps. Yeah, um, some other reasons that, that people say in various studies that they faked orgasm were avoiding the blame and pressure that comes mm-hmm. along with, with sex and avoiding conflict, doubt, guilt, shame, whether it's yours or your partner's. Um, and some people that uh, Foz talked to in her book basically were saying, you know, well, I don't have a good reason for not, you know, orgasming, so maybe I should just go ahead and fake it. Mm-hmm. I feel bad about it. Oh, these expectations. A lot of this goes back to uh, to these sex roles and these sexual scripts that we take into the bedroom and feel so compelled to follow. Um, and in addition to, you know, not wanting to have to explain yourself, there's also the idea of wanting to make your partner feel adequate, especially among uh, opposite sex couples. There was a study from the University of Kansas from Charlene L. Mullenhard and Sheena K. Shippey. And she, similar to the Temple University study I just mentioned, polled both male and female students and asked whether or not they had faked orgasm. And the number one reason why the 48% of women said yes, they had faked an orgasm was that they didn't want to bruise the guy's egos. This would be called altruistic deceit. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting because men's a lot of men's reasons for faking it are similar to women's. The mm-hmm. same, like they just want it to be over, or they know they're not going to achieve orgasm, so let's just go ahead and get this over with. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if men have the same the same reasoning as far as not wanting to hurt someone's feelings. There is a gender difference um, that Dr. Mullenhard at the University of Kansas uncovered between men's and women's rationale for faking an orgasm. More women said that they wanted to either avoid the negative consequence of having to explain why they weren't able to finish um, or they wanted to please their partner. So kind of from both angles, it's a way of it's sort of a subservience to the other person. Yeah. And going back to Aaron Cooper, who you mentioned earlier, an altruistic deceit, you know, saving the person's feelings. Um, Aaron Cooper called it a relationship maintenance strategy. 
and basically said that this leads into another uh, study called Do Women Pretend Orgasm to Retain a Mate? Ooh, I was not on board with this study <laughs> from Todd Shackelford. Mm. Dr. Shackelford, if you're listening, no, nothing personal, <laughs> but I uh, I question your methodology. It felt like one of those kind of self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecies that set up, like these researchers basically went into this study assuming that uh, via evolutionary biology, that women who suspected their partner of cheating were more likely to fake because it was it was a way to manipulate a partner's commitment by signaling a mate selection. Because this also goes back to this theory of female orgasm existing as a way for um, women to retain sperm of fitter mates, so that you know it's a signal to guys that were like, "Hey, you know what? My body's into your body." <laughs> That means you're amazing. I'm boosting your ego right now. And uh, so so they polled these women for how often they faked orgasms. And then they also asked about certain behaviors such as intentionally flirting in front of other guys mm-hmm. to make their partner jealous or displaying jealous tendencies toward other women that their, uh, their mates might interact with. And so they said, yes, there is a correlation and... Women be faking just to keep their men around. <laughs> exactly. That's actually a quote from the study. And really, I mean, if you think about it, we have like listed out so many different reasons why women might fake. It might be to keep a man. It might be to drive him away. It might be to go to bed. It might be to stay awake and cuddle. And I would just like to state my favorite quote from this, this retain a mate study. Uh, you know, we talked about how women are, are faking orgasms to, to retain their mate and being like, you're sexy, so I'm going to fake it. And look mm-hmm. at how sexy I am by making all these noises. So Ooh. let's be sexy together. Um, another reason is to prevent defection from the relationship, which I think is a great way, a great, of course, a scientist person would write that. So instead of saying we broke up, just start saying, yeah. well, uh, <laughs> she defected. Yeah, I think the next time that anything like this happens to me, like a breakup or something, I think I'm going to say, it's, I'm not breaking up with you. I am defecting. I'm I'm defecting. I'm going to defect from this relationship. It sounds much more revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Like, raw defection from the... Anyway, moving on. Um, Well, a lot of this research is focused on women, but we have not gotten to one of the most groundbreaking points of all this research, which is that, guys, guess what? (laughs) You're doing it, too. (laughs) Guys are doing it, too. And not just a couple of fellas here and there. No, no. Going back to that University of Kansas study, which was done specifically because Charlene L. Mullenhard wanted to know whether or not men pretended orgasm. And 18% of the men surveyed said that, yes, they had pretended. And another, in addition to that, another 16% said that they had kind of sort of pretended, done something along the lines to to deceive their partner in, in terms of how much they were really enjoying the sexual activity. Um, and there was one interesting difference that she found in the ways that men and women faked it 
Uh, Caroline, you mentioned, uh, you know, looking sexy and being all like, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> going back to the When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, women tend to fake by becoming a lot more vocal, uh, whereas men tend to fake by clenching their muscles more and thrusting harder and then being like, okay, I did it. I'm done. <sighs> or just stopping. Some of the guys were like, well, I just... I, I, well, I just stopped. <laughs> yeah, it's over now. Mm-hmm. And and some of the studies talked about uh, uh, scripts for this kind of thing, relationship and sexual scripts for this kind of thing, and how um, when a man fakes it, or when a man orgasms, real or fake, uh, that signifies that sex is over. Mm-hmm. Whereas if a woman fakes it, that signifies like, okay, honey, you can go now so that we can stop. <laughs> Right. Um, and uh, I think it's also worth po- pointing out that a vast majority of this fakery takes place during penile vaginal intercourse. Uh, oral sex came in a, quote, distant second. So there is something about intercourse that, that, that sets these crazy scripts into play. And the script, the established script, is that uh, that the woman should orgasm first and then the man should orgasm because the male orgasm signals the end of sex because in the uh, physiological process of sexual intercourse and climax men go through a latency period after sex whereas women can have multiple orgasms and uh, playing off of some of those differences you were talking about um, a study by sexual research team William Masters and Virginia Johnson found in the lab wonder what kind of experiments these were. Found in the lab that men took about four minutes to orgasm with their partner, while women took 10 to 20 minutes to orgasm with a partner. But when masturbating, women took about, you guessed it, four minutes. Mm-hmm. So there, you're right. There is something about partnered sexual uh, penile vaginal intercourse. Right, because, um, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but women will report far higher prevalence of achieving an orgasm through clitoral stimulation versus achieving orgasm through vaginal stimulation exclusively. A lot of women, I think it's something around 50% of women, rarely will have an orgasm just from uh, vaginal intercourse. But there was, uh, th- th- all this brought up a question in my mind of whether or not this is just an issue for heterosexual couples. Um, and while a majority of the research is done on, uh, on straight women, there was a study that we found from the Journal of Sex Research in 1983, a little bit dated. And the researchers were investigating the differences in self-reported sexual satisfaction among lesbians compared to straight women. And they found that, lo and behold, lesbians report having sex more often, feeling more sexually satisfied, and having orgasms uh, more often than their straight counterparts. And so the researchers wondered if maybe this had to do with the type of sexual stimulation that is going on. Now, at the same time, um, I also was doing a little little poking around on the interwebs and landed on a column on Alternet, basically 
urging people to dispel this myth of the perfect lesbian sex because that only perpetuates this idea that all women function sexually the exact same way. And that's not true. Um, but statistically, lesbians do seem to have, uh, seem to have a better, better time of it. But I wonder if it's because they're breaking, they're, they're not operating within that rigid heterosexual script. Yeah. Could be they feel more free to, um, do whatever feels good instead of just what they think their partner wants or what they think sex is supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to Masters and Johnson, who you referenced, uh, their research showed that same-sex couples of both genders were more likely to take their time. Maybe because there's not some order in their head of, mm-hmm. okay, well, uh, you go first <laughs> and then uh, and I'll go and then we'll <laughs> then we'll fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So going back to the Journal of Sex Research from 1983, uh, they cited some stats that 46% of heterosexual women reported difficulty reaching orgasm and 15% reported inability to reach orgasm. And this compares with 28% of lesbians who reported difficulty reaching orgasms and only 7% of lesbians who reported inability to reach orgasm. Mm-hmm. So uh, a big difference there in 1983. Right, which just makes me think of that, the statistic of how uh, penile vaginal intercourse is usually far more correlated to fake orgasms for both men and women compared to other forms of sexual contact. But the whole faking it thing, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's pretty fascinating that we that we would a lot of times when you read in women's publications about faking orgasms, it's urging us not to because the bottom line is you might not need to fake it if your sexual communication is open and honest and you're telling your partner, you know, what feels good and what you like. And hopefully that will help things. I mean, the fact, though, that people in that Masters and Johnson study were able in a laboratory setting to <laughs> to orgasm uh, within 10 minutes. Is pretty astounding to me. I wonder how they set the lab up. Like, did they did they make it look like the Playboy Bunny? A lot of or something. A lot of tea candles. <laughs> yeah, some lots of incense. Lots of pillows. <laughs> it was the uh, the early sixties, so you know, <laughs> beaded curtains. Yeah, a lot of shag carpeting. <laughs> and one more thing, just bringing it back to men, because we've talked about how yes, men do it. Uh, but we spent a lot more time talking about women. And it reminds me of an article that came out a couple years ago in New York Magazine uh, talking about this phenomenon of men faking it, and especially men uh, using condoms as a tool of, uh, of subversive <laughs> uh, fakery. And one of the guys said, one of the men who was, who was interviewed for the article says, as a guy, your biggest fear is that you'll come too soon. And another man who was interviewed uh, said that there was a double standard because men are expected to be these sex-crazed beasts who can, yes, achieve an orgasm within four minutes in even a laboratory of a setting, <laughs> uh, whereas women are almost assumed to take longer and maybe not even be able to reach orgasm at all. And if we are, we might be faking it. So... I can see how how some some fellows might might see a double standard there. But to all of this, I say, maybe we should just use this as a lesson in why communication is so important. Yeah. 
Yeah, feel. I mean, tell your partner what's what works for you and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. But also, if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And yes, there is the fear that you might hurt someone's feelings or someone might feel guilty or insulted or whatever. But yeah, I think opening those channels of communication might lessen the need to fake it. Right, because uh, if you look at psychological studies of couples who are complaining of having uh, disappointing sex lives, a lot of times it traces back to their level of sexual communication. You, if there's a, a dip in the the activity, a lot of times there's been a dip in or non-existence of communication. And I mean, communication is not an easy thing. But it's something to keep in mind. And can I can I toss out one last fun finding? Yes, about if it's faking? only if it's fun. It's pretty fun. Um, and I have tweeted about this, so Twitter followers, you're already in the know. <laughs> but there was a 2010 study from Emory University looking at the economics of faking it, and they found that uh, a funny correlation between education levels and uh, faking orgasm, and found that uh, people who are more highly educated tend to fake it because, quote, lovemaking takes time. And people people with more education may have a higher opportunity cost of time and may therefore be more likely to fake just to get it over with. Perhaps, this is a quote, perhaps so they can return to writing papers. (laughs) So doctoral students out there, we are on to you. Interesting. No, I mean, the study really had like whole giant formulas. Oh, yeah. With symbols and things, division signs. I don't know. Go efficiency. So now that we have bombarded you with statistics and theories about who's faking it and why, (laughs) you know what we're going to ask for? Your stories. (laughs) Don't be ashamed. Yeah. Also, don't be too dirty. Mm -hmm. We can't read them on uh, on the air if they're too dirty. Right. And, uh, you know, or if someone out there who has never faked it before, let us let us know. Are you just an incredible communicator? Yeah. Oh, another group of people I would like to hear from. Some of these studies talked about people who fake it intersect with women who have report never having had an orgasm. And so if, if we have any people out there who have never had an orgasm, they've, they've tried, mm-hmm. but maybe just have never gotten there, do you fake it Yeah, for that reason? Let us know, momstuff at discovery.com. And you can also head over to Facebook. But again, please keep our Facebook wall clean. Uh, and in the meantime, we've got a couple of emails here. I have... One in response to our long-ago episode about female scientists. And I really wanted to share this one because it is from Chloe, who is a Ph.D. student in chemistry at one of the top research institutions in the U.S. And she writes, First of all, I think people should understand that STEM females may make a little more money, but it's also the result of an additional 5 to 10 years, 10 to 14 hour days, 6 days a week of additional experience post-bachelor degree. I think this is something important that should be considered before convincing people to pursue careers in STEM. Secondly, I think your lack of role models explains explains the gender gap very well, but it's not because there aren't lack of successful female scientists. There are plenty of these very successful, intelligent scientists, but that doesn't translate to an individual we can look up to. I have a female advisor, and while she is a successful scientist, she has two nannies on rotation, travels at least a week out of the month, and makes it clear that family is not high on our list of priorities. The sad part is, this isn't uncommon. Many women my age in their late 20s 
20s, scientists are not want a family. However, it's very difficult to find a role model who can show us how to balance family life, their love for science, their careers, and also show compassion toward others. I think this is often the case that successful scientists might lack the more quote-unquote human side of things that many women consider to be important. This is why I and many of my friends are not pursuing this is why I and many of my friends are not continuing to pursue traditional academic careers. So some great insight from Chloe. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We have some more insight from Jessica. This is about our friendship podcasts, plural. She says that she's in somewhat unique of a position of being best friends with a male and female romantic couple. Through an odd but not uncomfortable set of circumstances, we have ended up sharing a two-bedroom apartment here in Korea, along with their two cats, also a male and a female. The difference in our friendship pretty clearly exemplifies the differences you mentioned between male and female roommates. With my female best friend, I share a very caring, warm bond. I call her when I'm upset about something, and she is the one who keeps up with me when I'm out of town. We know just about all of the intimate details of each other's lives, from my dating foibles to her relationship with her parents. Her boyfriend, my male best friend, loves and cares about me, but expresses this through wanting to spend time with me and watching funny movies or making jokes together. We rarely talk about our emotions, and when I gave him a hug the other day at his receiving some bad news, it was probably the first time we touched affectionately in months. They're very different friendships, and having them both is a complimentary force that means I don't have to search for someone to share brunch or a movie. And thanks to everybody who's written in. Again, our email address is momstuffatdiscovery.com. But of course, you can also head over to our Facebook page and send us a tweet. We're at momstuffpodcast. And if you want to know more about orgasms, both fake and not, you can read How Orgasms Work by me, written by me, <laughs> at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?